You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's always a, it's one of the most interesting things when you speak in front of a group of people, especially people who know and like each other and they really talk to each other. Um, how do you actually get them to stop talking to each other? And listen to you. And I'm sure talking to each other would be more enjoyable. We had a good moment. My son has recently started uh, high school here after moving. And one of the nice things was his high school history teacher in England was a Scottish gentleman who he liked very much. And his high school history teacher here in Homewood High School is a Scottish gentleman. That was a really nice connection. But on the very first day of class, this teacher was clearly having the same problem came into the room, the students were all loud, talking to each other, he was trying to get their attention. He's not that old, but he's just had a hip replacement. So he came in with a walker, he was not able to get anyone's attention, and so he just picked it up and sort of pretended he was going to start hitting the children with it. (laughs) This did get their attention, my son said, but it also made them louder and more rambunctious. So I was sort of looking for something in between those options. But now I've just kind of filled the silence and you're here and listening. So thank you so much. I was away last week, but you were in better hands than mine with Gil Cracky talking about how the comfortable words are comfortable even in our despair. I was at Lake Gunnersville and I had a really good time with my family, but I'm really glad to be back. And I thought before I jump into the material for this week exactly, I should be honest with you about why I've gotten so sort of intensely involved in the study of these couple of verses. I mean, this is the third week that we're really talking about one verse. I've tried to pretend it's three verses because that just sounds a little more reasonable. But really, it's one verse. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So three weeks for one verse. And if you're thinking, it's a little much, I kind of get it. But let me tell you what actually happened and how I got into this, because I think it'll take us to the heart of what we're doing today. And then I'll pray and we'll jump into it. But what I was doing was I was driving my mother-in-law's car. And as is very fitting when you're driving your mother-in-law's car, her CDs are playing, which of course meant it was Billy Joel. So Billy Joel was playing in my mother-in-law's car, and I was driving faster than I should drive any car. And the song came on called Vienna Waits for You. Now, if you know this song, one of the lines is, slow down, you crazy child. And I just thought, well, maybe that's from the Lord. So I looked. I was going roughly 90. I thought, I should. I should slow down. So I start paying attention now. Now I wonder what next. Slow down, you crazy child. You're too rambunctious for a juvenile. And then here came the line. If you're so smart, well, tell me, why are you still so afraid? I didn't actually crash the car, but it all felt very sort of precarious in this moment because that cut right through a lot of things. I had finished a PhD in theology. I had written about why what the New Testament calls the good news was actually news in the ancient world, why it was surprising, why it wasn't just what everyone else was saying, and also why it was actually good, why people responded to it with hope and joy and peace. And yet at the same time, so many times and so many days and for so many reasons, I still felt afraid. I knew about God's love for sufferers and for the weary and the alone in Jesus Christ. And sometimes I was still weary and felt alone. 
and could be afraid. And I started wondering about this disconnect that happens between the content of the gospel, that you are loved in Jesus, and yet our experience of life where so often we fear and we feel that we aren't loved or can't be loved. And the reason I was drawn to Galatians 2.20 is because in Paul's confession there, that disconnect is at least in the moment of his confession overcome. There's not a gap between God's love for Jesus on the cross and Paul's life and experience of it. They come together somehow. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. So I started asking this question about how the cross of Jesus Christ, which according to the New Testament, is God's definitive embodiment of love. It says in 1 John, God is love. But this doesn't mean that we love God first, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. The cross is God's final and forgiving, I love you. But that event happened a long time ago. I think you probably know the song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And on the one hand, we're probably inclined to say no. But according to Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. The deeper answer is yes, I was there. You were there. But how does that first century expression of God's love become today and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow? That's Macbeth, by the way. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's also Hamilton, now that I think about it. But moving on, how does that first century expression of love become today and tomorrow the experience of God's love? Galatians 2 says that Christ is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. But how... Is Jesus also and always the one who loves you in the present tense and gives himself to you? And that was the kind of experience prompted by Billy Joel. If you're so smart, tell me why are you still so afraid? That got me deep into this text. And I have certainly heard good news in it and from it. I hope to share a little bit more about that with you today. But let me pray first and then we'll spend a few more minutes looking at this passage. So, Father in heaven, I just pray again, as I've prayed every week for our time. I pray this because I believe that mercy lives where honesty and hope meet. And so I pray that you would compel us to be honest and that you would give us hope by doing two things. Show us that we need Jesus and give us Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so brief recap. I was away a week. It's a lot to remember. A brief recap. I suggested that Paul's strange confession, I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, forced us to rethink some pretty basic categories in reality. Just death, life, and what it means to be a human person. So kind of pretty simple things to deal with, and I just thought, let's take them one at a time. Week one, we talked about death, or at least what it means to be dead. Then we talked about life, what it means to be alive. And this week, we're talking about what it means to be a person, 
or particularly how, in light of the gospel, do we answer the question, who am I? So that's our question today. But the way we're going to answer that will flow out of what we've said about the other two categories. So one of the things I suggested, and what I was trying to do in the first week, was to give us a kind of theological resource to make some sense of what life often feels like as we live it. And we talked about how a lot of people are experiencing life as an overwhelming weight. That people, to quote Will Storr again in his book that looks at the self, why people are suffering under the weight of the fantasy self they're failing to become. I talked about university students who are feeling this. We talked about mental health statistics. There was a lot of things we could talk about, but basically people are feeling an overwhelming weight to both carry the burden of the world and all its problems and to carry the weight of their own worth and their own dignity and value. And I suggested that what Paul helps us see is that this life that can be too much to bear is when you're living in the realities of death and judgment are still in your future. That's really what it means to live a life under sin and death. When death and judgment are in your future and you are the basis for them, it's going to be your death and the life you live is going to be the basis for the final judgment. When both of those things are true, Life is a question too hard to answer and a weight too heavy to bear. And so I think Paul talks in a way that helps us describe and make sense of how hard life can sometimes be. But then Paul says that actually what happens in Jesus is that the death and the judgment on our life that felt so uncertain and so fearful and were in our future have now actually taken place, are in our past, because of what God has done in Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. Death is actually behind me, because Jesus died. And he says, in verse 16 of that same chapter, that a person is righteous, God's judgment on our life, what God sees and says when he looks at us, has been spoken, not on the basis of our pedigree or our performance, but on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection in Jesus. You have been declared righteous, valuable, enough, wanted, understood, forgiven, loved in Jesus' name. The judgment has been spoken in Jesus' name. And so we get to live with death behind us in God's saving, forgiving verdict on our life already spoken in Jesus' name. So that weight of your worth and that weight of the world and that question of your death has been taken off of your shoulders and carried by the one who said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He carries it. And in his name, we live. That's what we've said so far. But what does that mean about this old question, who am I? Who are you? 
And the reason I think this is a particularly important way to pose a question to this text is it's actually precisely the question or the set of questions that people keep pointing to when they talk about why they're experiencing so much increased anxiety, depression, why the rates of hospitalization because of self-harm and attempted suicide are actually happening. People point to the overwhelming sense that they are not enough. And they have a lot of ways of talking about this. Some use the language of guilt. They've said that they have made a mistake that they can never undo or recover, and they are haunted by this ghost from their past, and they won't sh leave them alone. They can't shake it. Some use the language of shame, which is less saying, I made a mistake, and more the feeling that I am a mistake. There just is something wrong with me. I'm not valuable. I'm not worth anything. But when asked to talk about those feelings, what people tend to report is that they know they're not valuable because, and then they start talking about the life they've lived. They always point to themselves. I'm not valuable because I was born into a condition of poverty or abuse. Or I'm not valued because I have not performed well at school. Or I didn't make the sports team. Or I wasn't good at the instrument I really wanted to play. Or I didn't get into the university I applied to. Or I didn't get the job I was hoping to. Or I didn't marry the person I was hoping I was married. Or I got married and I wasn't able to have children. Or I had children and I found out it's hard to have children. Or I got married and found out, oh, that's also hard. Etc., etc., etc. People feel that their life, that they are not enough because of their biography. Now, this isn't surprising. There's something very natural and common sense about this. That if we were going to answer the question, who am I or who are you, we would start by talking about me or about you. Right? We do this all the time. Tell me about yourself. And we probably would start talking about ourself. It might be a little strange if someone tell, said, tell me about yourself. And you said, well, there was this guy born in a manger, right? <laughs> but nevertheless, you'd be on the right track in the deepest, deepest sense. So who am I? This is the question we want to come to because it's people's failed attempt to satisfyingly and peacefully answer that question about who they are with reference to themselves. That is at least one of the reasons people find life a weight too heavy to bear. That's the kind of situation in which I'm talking about. Maybe some of you will know a poem by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's called Wer bin ich, which means who am I? He wrote it in prison where he was eventually executed. Um, under the Nazi regime. And he was in prison and he said, who am I? Am I what other people say about me? Or am I what I know to be true about myself? In the beginning of the poem, those are the only options he can imagine. Either his reputation or his actual life as he knows it to be true. But both of them 
he comes to see by the end of the poem, assume that the answer to the question who he is has to be answered by saying something about him. And he says at the end, they haunt me, these lonely questions of mine. There's one more line, which I hope both I remember and I remember to share with you, but let's pause there for a moment. When he thinks that the question of who he is has to be answered by saying something about him, either what other people say about him, the judgment of his peers, or on the basis of his own life, he's haunted by the question. Another person wrote a poem and said the same thing. This was Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson. He was the editor architect of the first English dictionary. And actually, he had just finished it. He was famous. He basically could, he was sort of like the 18th century equivalent of Twitter in that he could just sort of write a sentence and get paid lots of money for it. He had really sort of reached a good, good place from a career point of view, had just published the English Dictionary. He had succeeded. But actually, he found what lots of successful people find, lots of people who think that their sense of being enough can be derived from the thing they're good at and have succeeded at, which is when you actually succeed at the thing that everyone expects you to succeed at, there's no joy in that. Do you know what Olympic athletes report as the nearly only emotion they experience when winning Olympic gold? What do you think they say? What's the one thing that they all experience when they finally get Olympic gold? Relief, exactly. They don't say joy. They don't say it was fun. They don't say, oh, it felt just like running in the backyard with my siblings. They say relief. That's all they feel. They did what they were supposed to do, and the joy wasn't really there. Actually, one of the more meaningful forms of ministry I get to do is I work with current and former Olympic athletes who have realized how much people are sort of basing their identity on their performance and how fragile that is and how much suffering lives just under that surface. And for that reason, they've all wanted to train to be chaplains in the Olympic Village so that they can minister to other athletes. And there's a group of us that sort of are helping prepare them to do that ministry. But they're really the ones who can do it because they can talk sufferer to sufferer precisely because they're talking success to success. And it's that combination which I find really interesting. But here's what Dr. Johnson said. He's published the English Dictionary, and then he writes a poem called Who Am I? Um, no, he doesn't. That was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a poem. Remember, my books are in storage. I'm making this all up. He, he wrote a poem called Know Thyself. Okay? He, wrote it, he actually wrote it in Greek because he was still showing off a little bit. But he, he then translated it himself into English, and he wrote a poem called Know Thyself. And it, about halfway through, he says, I find myself fettered to myself. I'm chained to myself. And then the next lines talk about how because of that, he can't sleep. It says, vile dreams call out to vile dreams and sleepless nights haunt me the whole time through. He can't sleep because he thinks his value, his identity, his dignity, his sense of being enough is determined by myself, himself. I'm chained to myself. I think you get it. I've made the point 
as well as I know how in a few short minutes, that we naturally answer the question who I am by talking about me. And yet the result of that for many, many people is a life in which we try but fail to carry the weight of our own worth, where the things we do don't just become the things we do, but they become the definition and the basis for who we are. The joy comes out of the things we used to love, and a burden is put in all of our activities, in our inheritances, and we pretend, we compare, we compete, and we posture. One of the things you can never be in that kind of condition of life is just yourself very hard to be honest. You remember what the comedian Chris Rock said? He says, nobody meets anybody anymore. We just meet each other's representatives, right? Everyone is kind of always on first date or job interview existence and mode because we can't take the mask off. It's masquerade, paper faces on parade, hide your face so the world will never find you. That's Phantom of the Opera. If you want a slightly better musical, listen to Disney's Frozen, which says, conceal, don't feel. Don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you're always supposed to be. Right? Put on a show or everyone will know. Anyway, I just sort of need to get that out. Um, but there's a habit of hiding that naturally flows from the natural sense that what others think about us and what we project is actually the measure of our value and our worth. Of course, the cruel result of that is that if people do respond positively to the mask we wear, if they say, oh, you are very good at that, or that was very impressive, and you suddenly get respect or what feels like affirmation, you know that they're responding to and affirming, not you, but your representative, the mask you wear. So on the one hand, you feel like nobody knows you, and you feel like nobody loves you. And of course, the deep fear is that if you actually took the mask off and they did know you, then they wouldn't love you. That happens in Phantom of the Opera too, by the way, when Christine takes off his mask, and she fails the test. She does not love him in that moment. And what happens? Down once more, and you have a descent into hell. That is the reality of being seen and rejected. Our deepest fear played out. So how is this good news in relationship to that? Well, maybe what we've already said about death and life is enough for you to be able to anticipate where we're going here. If what God sees and says when he looks at us, if our judgment is not determined and defined by the life we live, by our inheritance, our achievement, and it's not something that's uncertain or in the future, but it's something God has already said to us on the basis of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Then maybe we can ask the question who we are and answer it not by talking about ourselves, but by pointing to what God has done in Jesus. And this, I think, is the deep, hopeful, comfortable pattern of Paul's confession in Galatians 2. At every point, he exposes our natural tendency to anchor judgment, life, 
our value, the question of death in ourselves, and then surprisingly and mercifully shifts it from ourselves and gives it to Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or, our righteousness before God is not, he says, on the basis of works of law, the things we've inherited or achieved. It is on the basis of what God has done in Jesus Christ. You see that pattern? He's always shifting. He's saying, I know you're inclined to think you are the answer to these questions, that your life will be the basis for your judgment, that you will have to die your death and deal with that problem, that you think what you are doing will finally and decisively define who you are. But no, what God has done in Jesus is where God reveals what his judgment is, where he decisively deals with the problem of death, which you cannot solve, and where, in Jesus' name, God tells you who you actually are. That's really all I've been trying to say in our weeks together. I was just asked to come for three weeks, so I tried to use more words than that. But that's what I've been trying to say. The problem of death, which human beings cannot solve. You know, people are really, really working hard at this one. Um, I mean, they've been doing it for a long time. There's an amazing uh, sort of choral moment in a play by Sophocles called the Antigone, right? And in the Antigone, the chorus, this is, this is it's old, so if you, you know, spoiler alert, that kind of thing, 2,500 years old, sorry, but there's a great moment and the chorus is just praising all the amazing things that human beings have done, right? And this is Greek culture at its height during the classical era in Greek, and they're saying human beings are amazing, We build boats and harbors and temples and we fight wars and we conquer lands and we write poetry and wow, we're so amazing. And then there's just this line right at the end. It's like, and yet we still die. And it's just kind of like, we can't quite get rid of that one. We're still there a bit. The Onion had this great headline, which said, um, you know, the Onion that made up, but probably the most true of all news sources currently available, said that was, I don't know if that was funny or not, but I just sort of thought I'd try it out. But the Onion said, scientists disappointed to result that after much labor, mortality rate holds at 100%. Um, I thought that was a good headline. That sort of cuts to the point. So there are problems that we cannot solve. And death is the sort of great exposing of that reality. And yet the problem of death is finally dealt with in Jesus. Not I, but Christ. The problem of judgment, what God will see and say to you at final judgment, is not dealt with on the basis of your life. Not I, but Christ. And the question of who we are is not finally dealt with by our life, by our biography, but by Jesus not I, but Christ. And it's just that pattern I want to hear you or just keep sharing with you to realize that we're so inclined to think that it's I really helps me make sense of why life feels the way it does for me and for so many people. Why, to quote Billy Joel again, if I'm so smart, why am I often still so afraid? That kind of thing. But then also that there's hope. 
because the one who came to conquer sin and death came for you to conquer your death, to forgive your sin, to declare you righteous in Jesus' name, and to answer the deep question of who you are. That's the first thing to say. It does raise a question, just sort of watching the clock, because I do want to make sure I get to one more point. The first thing to say, then, is that Jesus and what God has done in Jesus is God's way of answering the question who you are. Paul says this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Jesus revealed himself to me as to one untimely born. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, he says, because I persecuted the church. But then comes this amazing line, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. His biography, all he could say was, I'm unworthy. But on the basis of something else, what he calls the grace of God, he says, I am who I am. That's the first thing to say about how Paul helps us answer the question, who are you? You are not the answer to that question. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is. Do you remember what Bob Dylan said when some newspaper reporters asked him, well, you know, journalists are writing lots of things about you. How does it make you feel when you read such and such? And he just said, thank God I'm not me. <laughs> and that is a perfect summary of what Paul is saying here about who we are. Right? Who we actually are is defined by what God has done in Jesus. That is good news for those who feel the weight and are failing to carry the weight of their own dignity, of their own value, of their own significance, of their own belovedness, because it takes that weight off. And I don't want to diminish at all how powerful that good news is. But it does raise one question, and this one's maybe been hiding under all of our times together. And just in the last couple of minutes, I want to make sure we address it. Because if this pattern is not I, but Christ, over and over and again, and what God sees and says when he looks at you, he says, not on the basis of your life, but on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's good news because it frees you from the burden of carrying the weight of the world and having to deal with your own judgment and death. But does it mean that God never actually looks at and loves you? If your worth and your value is not I, but Christ? Does it mean that you're not actually loved, but God has sort of come up with a way in Jesus to accept you, even though he doesn't necessarily really like you? Does he only ever look at and love Jesus? But what about you? So you're free you're forgiven, you're declared righteous, but does God love you? That's a question that can come out with this kind of pattern and this kind of preaching. I know it can come out because there's been some critiques written of Paul's theology, of the theology of people like Martin Luther who said, there's a, there's a problem built in here. It sounds like good news, but actually I think it's sort of fundamentally opposed to human dignity. And people who have been told their whole life that they're not valuable, maybe especially people who have been degraded, oppressed, 
people who have been abused or subject to kind of systematic forces that make it difficult for them to have equal opportunities, could actually hear that in Christ, rather than in themselves, they are worthy as bad and debilitating news because they're just being told you could never really be loved, but don't worry, God loves Jesus. And he doesn't really see you. You've probably heard when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin. He sees his son. That's right. But does that mean God can't look at you? What's going on? Do you, do you feel that question there? I'm just asking, does God actually love us? That's the question I'm asking. Because being able to say yes is the most basic way in which the good news is said to us when we ask the question, who am I? Because I think the deepest answer to the question, who am I and who are you, is that you are loved by God. And so we need to be able to answer this question. But listen to what Paul says here. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So there's that shifting away from the self and to the Son of God to carry the weight of our worth, to deal with the problem of our death and be the one in whose name we are declared righteous and enough. But then listen to what he says. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We get the order wrong if we think that God loves us because Jesus has come and stands in between us and God. What Paul says is that Jesus came to us because he loves us. He loved first. Romans 5 puts it like this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And then verse 8 of Romans chapter 5 said, God demonstrated his love this way. While we were still sinners, right? Christ died for us. God sees and knows the real you. And that's the you God loves in Jesus. That is why Jesus comes. He does come and in love takes the burden of your death and your value and your judgment off of your shoulders and carries it himself all the way to the cross and leaves it in the tomb, which is empty. But he does that because he loves you. Which means there's two things we can say if we want to answer the question, who am I or who are you? And this is where I'm going to end. If we want to know who am I, if you're asking who am I, what Paul's confession invites us to do is first to look away from ourselves, to not answer that question by looking in, which is natural, but by following the finger of John the Baptist and beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you want to know who you are, don't look at you, look at Jesus Christ. But when you look away from yourself and look at Jesus Christ, do you know who you find looking back at you? You find the one who loved you and gave himself for you. You look away from yourself to the one in whom death 
is defeated, righteousness is given, and forgiveness comes. But when you look away, you'll find him looking right back, and you will find the Father saying to you what that Father has always said to his eternal Son. It's the thing that the Father is saying to you right now in Jesus' name. It's who you are. And it's my great joy to tell you this morning what the Father is saying right now and to tell you who you are. You are God's beloved child in whom God is well pleased. And we can say that in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody hold on. But, you, but also leave, but hold on. So Bonhoeffer said, right, they haunt me, these lonely questions of mine. But then right at the end he says, but whoever I am, O Lord, I am thine. In other words, the answer, the question is not who am I, but whose am I? And you are God's. Yeah. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.